You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hello and welcome to this week's Red Center. I'm Mike Seymour. I'm Jason Wingrove. So, uh... Later in the show, we have the most amazing interview with a director, uh, Doug, who's done, um, uh, I think, is an astoundingly cool sneaker spot, or uh, what do you call it? Do you call them sneakers now? Do you call them sand shoes? Do you call them runners? Runners, Runners, I'm sorry. Showing my age. Um, But it's terrifically cool um, with a makeshift rig, um, some really nice post-production, and a a Canon 5D. It's really getting everything together. Lots of cool CGI, time-lapse. You know it's cool because both Jason and I kind of looked at each other and said, "I wish I'd done that." DC, DSLR, Lego, Lego, yeah, you can't beat the Lego. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> that's all coming up later in the show in the red room. Um, but as we always do, we'll be starting off with the news. Hmm. Well, news as ever. There's not an awful lot of a ton of red news, but um, a couple of things have started to creep out, which is good. I think obviously what what we're what's happening is we're starting to come out of a bit of a lull, as uh, Jim calls it, and we'll be heading soon. It sounds like we've got over some of the production hassles, and uh, Scarlet and Epic are slowly on their way. No sign of tattoos, though, uh, unless I'm tripping, unless I'm missing something here, Mike. I can't see one around here. There's not one in no. here in the office. Um, no, not one here. As far as I know, uh, tattoos aren't wildly in the field yet, but that, no. that may be wrong. If you know differently, let us know. Um, one thing that was interesting was a shot of a bunch of uh, epics on a desktop and another shot of a Scarlet filming an epic, which I think is the first time we've seen a shot from the Scarlet, at least in that, that kind of uh, you know, reasonable-looking configuration. Yeah, a shot of, of a lens. functioning Scarlet uh, mm-hmm. with a red, uh, red prime, I think that is. I'm trying to work out what lens is on that one. Uh, but it's filming a uh, epic, a Super 35 epic, with a, most importantly, with a Canon 85 1.4, I think that, that one is, the, basically with an L, L glass, uh, Canon L glass lens, uh, electronically mounted onto an epic. Uh, what was obviously cool about it is that we could see that uh, epic was control, happily controlling the lens um, and that all the focus data will go through to the R3D, and obviously that will then. Uh, sync up with the touchscreen ability. It's going to be rather cool. I actually think there's a bit of a race on now, a race we're unaware of, uh, to see whether Canon comes out with a... Because um, uh, I, I have strong rumours that there's something happening from Canon, as we tend to get. But this yeah. one is uh, Canon's mounting a show in, I think, the Jarvis Java Centre in uh, New York in yep. um, October, is it, I think? Or yeah, I think September, it's uh, in about a month, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so there's, there's a belief that they'll be actually coming out with... Um, uh, some stuff that's relevant to the video industry. The rumours, you've probably all heard them, but they include uh, a range of lenses that are actually more geared towards video production, which would mean that they had uh, possibly the ability to have in-line, in-camera NDing to stop, stop the aspherical lens um, being somewhat negated by sticking NDs at the front of it, as we all tend to do, stick mm-hmm. NDs at the front. Are you still using variable NDs, or are you using uh, individual fixed NDs? Uh, I've got both, and I think just for convenience, I'm using the um, variable NDs. I do, I've got a circular polar, just to go on the front of most of my lenses, but I've also got a 4x4 linear polar in mm-hmm. a map box, which is essentially what a, linear, well, what a variable ND is, is a circular polar and a linear polar together. Um, so I haven't yet experimented that, with that, but I've got the gear now then to then put the 4x4 linear polar in the map box and rotate it around that way. So I think what would be nice then is that you actually get control of the polar on the lens to set this, you know, get the sky looking right and then, then obviously do the ND with the other polar. Because with the variable ND, I mean, you just screw them on and how they, where they fall is where they fall. It's kind of 
getting the value out of you know darkening your sky or getting rid of reflections kind of tends to go out the window a little bit with a very indie. Mm, that's true. Well, that's all um, I think you know happening by Christmas. We'll basically look back on this period and say that you know both teams were working madly to get stuff out before what would be the end of the American summer. American summer typically a bit of a slow period all round. Mm. Um, and I think in that period around uh, Thanksgiving in the US will be a really interesting time for cameras. People are even talking about a 5D Mark III. I'm, I'm not sure I'm there. I think that they're probably going to come out with a 1DS. Yeah, be a 1DS but, by um, the sound of it. And, but with a little bit more gearing towards um, shooting, proper shooting, which at the moment the, the 1D is not, is not... It's almost less, it's less ergonomically suited to or less switch gear. All the, all the, all the you know, switches and positions of all that stuff is even less... Um, <coughs> less friendly, le- than, less the friendly than the yeah 5D. I mean, really. quite frankly, I think the 7D has the best arrangement of switches. Yeah, yeah, it just has the worst images in my book. Um, oh, I don't think I'll ever shoot with another 7D. I've done it. I've done it. I used it on another oh camera. I just God. can't. Here we go. I just can't go there. No, it just no, does, it's it does not that not, bad. It it's just not as shallow as no, the 5D. Yeah, it's just not. The, ca- <clears throat> the camera, we spent like about half an hour going through all the setups, all the custom profiles, matching the two cameras, same color temps, same everything, and they did not look the same. Definitely. There was still something differently baked into the 7D footage that is completely different to the 5D. And I don't think it's in a good way. Yes, there's the, fi- yes, there's the depth. Um, we shot with fast glass, and it still doesn't cut. I just, just, nah. Nah. No, thanks. 7D, you know, it's great for a director's viewfinder on set, good for, you know, shooting stuff that matches lenses. But as a standalone thing, terrific. It's got terrific switch gear and all that sort of ergonomics. But next. Um, Actually, it's funny that you should say that because we've been doing a series of tests, um, which I guess we can sort of jump ahead to. Well, I guess we should finish with the news, but I I do want to talk about the tests we've been doing Mm. in working out the compatibility between the uh, 5Ds and the 7Ds and also just in terms of the sensor and and calibrating the sensors. But I will come to that in a minute. Um, What other news do you want to hit first? Oh, one of the other shots in that thread was uh, a rather cool shot, an annoyingly cool shot of uh, Dave Fincher, director Dave Fincher, with six epics five of them seem to be working uh taken by <laughs> other say, taken by another director mark romanek uh, at uh red's new hollywood uh shop so i guess there's three parts of news there the fact that um you know there's a whole bunch of uh, working epics not just one or two sort of uh, test meals but also the fact that uh, as we know dave finch is shooting with them uh and also that uh, red has opened a hollywood uh, store um, so you can go there. To now, is the Hollywood store located at the Hollywood it, studio? I guess it must be at uh, Red Red Studios. Right. Actually, I don't know. It's literally only opening, I believe it's actually literally opening today. Um, Sydney time on Thursday, I think it was. So, yeah. Another great place to buy uh, red T-shirts. No, I'm just joking. Um, actually, I really enjoy going and visiting the red shop. Or in a colour chart. Um, or a colour chart, there you go. Um <laughs> So, um, anyway, so minor news, but I mean, one of the underlying thing is that things are moving. We're getting out of production holes. We're getting out of lulls and stuff. We're going to really, it's going to start to accelerate exponentially now. I think we're really going to start to see stuff out there. And obviously I think they're using, I mean, maybe the tattoo program's going to be more of an excuse, exclusive club of the first run of production cameras. Really. It may end up being less, maybe my guess is going to be less of a beta program you're going to have less of that input and the input really is they've found a lot of these big bugs that would have been 
that you know the kind of stuff that you would have found in, in with the red one days right they've sorted out a lot of these bugs before we've even got to before we even got to you know to tattoo really big stuff and little hidden stuff which obviously we've been involved we've seen with the the respinning of the asx and all this sort of stuff we've seen a lot of a lot of the major debugging happening behind the scenes rather than in in our hands so maybe that whole epic thing will just be a nice first come first serve exclusive um club and not so much of a beta a beta um program the discuss well i was going to say that the the approach on scarlet was always to not really have the beta that was planned yeah there's never been discussion of a tattoo for the scarlet Mm. um but look, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm nice. happy. I mean, however, however it comes, we can get them out there. It'd be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to shooting with Epic. I know we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but uh, the other thing, I think I kind of penny dropped that kind of worked out to me that this is going to be Epic, obviously, being 5K is a much larger, larger sensor. That it's essentially uh, Red One is like a 1.5 crop factor closer to, say, a 7D. And. Uh, epic being 5k it's around about 1.2 or so crop sensor it's larger about the same size as a one uh, a one ds uh, so much uh you know your lenses are going to act differently you're going to get a little bit you're going to get head more towards that 5d look um but with a but an epic so the whole full frame 35 thing might not be such a, a jump from red one to you know from epic as we might have thought that's my guess. And reading between the lines and just piecing together scraps of information, I think it's going. To, we're going to have a... Epic is not just going to be another, you know, red one that can, that can go fast. You know, I think it's, we're, going to see, we're going to see a different look, I think, apart from all the rest of the stuff and having Mysterium. I think we're going to see a, uh, you know, the next sort of stage on the move towards probably the next standard, which will be full frame, I'd say. Yes. Well, actually, we had some pretty interesting um, uh, stuff, if you recall, um, hinted at. I mean, there was a kind of a brief, you know, Jim put his head up and said, this is all going to be amazing, and then kind of went away. So, mm-hmm. um, but look, you know, I have faith that it'll be interesting. Oh, I have li- not a huge amount of interest in, in discussing it till the cows come home. No, um, no, no. But, but uh, yeah. If you want a bit of a refresh of the, of the love... Um, for Epic, which is kind of sort of waning a little bit, you know. I don't think it's waning. I think it's there's, just we, we just, just need to get our hands on it to go to the next stage. There's yeah, as if they've there's a much there's a red dot epic dot com, which is this sort of a site which I'd completely forgotten was a, a completely dedicated to Epic, and just really some nice Epic porn there. Some really gorgeous. Now who's shots. running that? That's it's a red website, Epic dot red dot com, and uh, just gorgeous sort of pictures and uh, 3D spin arounds specs um, yeah so it's a nice kind of hmm I think uh, yeah if you're sort of getting your, your interests waning a little bit go <laughs> have a bit of a fish around there and you kind of go yeah this is extremely cool yeah I think not that we didn't know that but sometimes you kind of forget it's been so long in the coming you kind of, you kind of forget that a bit and seeing also seeing um, uh, a little sort of uh, charts there of 5d versus even versus 4d uh, for for 5k versus 4k and versus hd and yeah it's very cool spec sheets all subject to change 
as is the schedule. I must admit, I um, I really, really, really enjoyed shooting <laughs> with a five D. So, not that I'm saying anything revolutionary here, but you know, it's like you shoot with the red for a bit, and then you go, oh, "I love this." Then you go shooting with the with the five D. You sort mm. of love this. I guess yeah. the thing is. Um, heavily in the camp of just go and shoot some stuff. You know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. whichever camera you've got, love the one you're with. Because mm. you've been having fun with red lately. Uh, yeah, look, absolutely. I, I just did this shot with a uh, this uh, shoot last week with a like wild animal, five ton of wild animal. Um, and it was terrific, actually. In the edit, I've had my ass a little bit saved here and there by, by the ability to not have two cameras on set and the ability to have a completely unrepeatable shot not having to cover it on two cameras and know that i've got a wide and a tight always on every frame and i mean obviously you don't have that ability if you're going to go for 4k film finish but for the average hd or sd tvc um the ability to crop in and and stuff and and know that i've always got that mid shot in every wide shot is uh, you know really nice sort of safety net and you, you know if that was 5d you know Forget it. There's no way. You, you know, there's, and you've got a little bit of crop, but you know, it's just the res. You start apart from the fact that you, you've only got 1080p. It's it's just not an image you want to start going blowing up. It's it's lovely as it is, but you know, don't start magnifying the thing really. And, and just on that, I've been raving about the doubler, the you know, two times doubler on my Canon. Yeah, yeah. Look, I was watching that today. Can I just point out that I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but. I was going to say that the bastard that stole mine <laughs> between Chicago and Sydney is a bastard. How and does that um, I'm about to get my third one, um, <laughs> which is currently being FedExed. I'm not even going to say where it's being FedExed to. No, so don't, no, get no. My, don't say anything until it's here. I think Amazon thinks we're trading in doublers. We bought so many. What the hell? And got insurance claims. I oh, know. The, the bag was opened and rifled through on the way really? from Chicago to here, yeah. So it arrived empty. It, it arrived sans doubler and a couple of other things and some stupid leads and business cards tipped out everywhere and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, I know. But who are you going to complain to? Because between Chicago and here's two different airlines, three different airports. Yep. You know, I mean, there's an insurance claim, but yeah, it's sure. not the point, really. <sighs> I was looking forward to testing that because uh, I've been well, watching uh, the your um, fantastic continuing fantastic course with Tyler on uh, the nature shooting, SLR shooting been fantastic what's been great um it's been seeing the comparisons between you know like nine thousand fifteen thousand dollar four hundred millimeter lenses and the seventy to two hundreds that we both own with a with a with a four hundred dollar or a six hundred dollar doubler attached oh, it's not even that it's three hundred and nine dollars yeah to double it the two hundred to four hundred which is just exactly what you want if you're doing wildlife or kids parties I mean, really, I mean, you no, want to get I it for the face use, shot. Yeah, I want to use, I want a tighter lens to shoot, you know, kids' football and stuff like that. It's I mean, different. when we were shooting the grizzly bears, getting the face shot was the money shot. You know, you wanted to see the eyes. You need to, for, for a wild animal or a wild child at a, at a <laughs> juiced-up Christmas cake party, you need to see the eyes uh, to get the money shot. So, yeah, yeah no, that's true. It's all about the human face. It really is. I mean, I, I think that you need to get in there and... Um, I'm, I want to do a bit more testing. Can't do it because someone stole my doubler, but yeah. that is coming. Uh, but what's on, also uh, different, obviously, what you gain is if you put a doubler on a 70 to 200 versus a 400 prime, is obviously you gain the ability to zoom. You can go, it's, it becomes a 200 to 400, uh, or yeah. a 140 to, to, to 400. Yes, yes, yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah, so, which so, you can't do with a 400 mil, a big 400 mil, whatever, five, seven, eight kilo lens. 
you know, walking that around. Oh, I'm a bit too tight. Okay, walk 20 feet back to make any difference in the shot. Okay, walk 20 feet in to, you know, oh, just zoom. Yeah, I mean, the difference between stills and video is you can't blow up the video because it's already been converted to the 90 by 1080 It doesn't suffer the, mm. the blow-up. So it makes a huge difference getting the framing right in camera in a way that I haven't worried about with stills for years. And the weight. And the weight. Yeah, you're adding, whatever, 400 grams versus, you know, another tripling the, tripling the weight of a 70 to 200. Yeah. Well, so, and I think it's the conspicuousness of it as well. I mean, yeah. you actually look like a complete tosser <laughs> with a 400mm lens at your kid's party. A 400-8L is, is, is a big lens. <clears throat> but getting back to serious stuff for a second, actually moving for wildlife, because obviously we had to be very nimble, because um, wildlife is, is, you know, unscripted doco-type filming, you have to be able to jump and move, and moving quickly with heavy-weighted stuff is pretty hard, especially we're up at like 5,000 feet or whatever. So not insignificant, the altitude effect uh, for somebody that might leave like me that lives at sea level so um no but seriously the weight is an issue the the amount of tripod you know sort of mm. ness that you require to make it work yeah. um and there's this other thing which we were, we were talking about before about which held me back from doublers for a while until i kind of went well hang on a second is the fact that you think oh well i'm going to lose the light you know i don't want to go to a, i've spent all this money on fast glass i, I love the shallow depth of field of, of a 2.8 lens on the you know 200, 200 if i put this doubler on suddenly i'm going to get you know, I'm losing two stops, so my depth of field becomes like a five six. But that's uh, finally the penny drops. That no, hang on a second, doesn't work that way. Yeah, you lose the light because the doubler is blowing up the optical center of the previous picture. The way I described it in that uh, background class is that if you've got the two eight that's managed to get you in focus and the mountains behind you soft, putting the doubler in the stream isn't going to suddenly bring the mountains into sharp relief. Mm. It's going to do a effectively blow up crop though optically not digitally upstream of the 1920 by 1080 and so you do lose the two stops you gain it back normally with iso um to get back to where you were you can't open up anymore because you're already at 2.8 yeah so it's an uh, optical it's a two times optical crop with an nd essentially is a way of thinking about it you're losing light <clears> but you're not it's not your iris hasn't changed you're still your physical iris is the thing that's obviously dictating the depth of field and that has not moved so it's like an optical magnifying glass, mm-hmm. uh, but in, with in the light pipe. loss somewhere in the path, but not, uh, but without a depth, about a, without a depth change. It's like essentially zooming in again. It's yeah. like a sensor crop. And the other thing about it is, it actually works the other way a little. I find because the apparent softness at the center mm. hasn't has increased though the uh, the actual softness doesn't so let me just explain that if i was to have the mountains behind you out of focus in a wider frame i'm kind of less aware i'm um, now on a still if i was just to crop in i would get exactly the same effect i'm not saying anything funny is happening yeah but but you know it's just that when it's a bit smaller because it's a wider frame mm. it feels a little sharper and you're not using the peripherals of the lens, which are traditionally the slightly more softer part of the, the optics anyway. So I, I mean, I, I really don't see a lot of, of the I don't really see a lot of vignetting on the. No, on I those. mean the results was really impressive. It was great, you know. As I say, I don't want to turn this into like you know the our our Drobo ad, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to well, at least we're still this, talking you about the The course is awesome. It's terrific to see because I have never seen those tests before. Really compa- comparing the two, um, and you know, in hundred mils and. And, and primes and things just yeah. to see horses. Well, that's what I was going to say because we've now drifted from the news. What I was going to say that we've been testing a lot of is it came from that because we looked um, in this background, in this uh, thing over at, at FX PhD that Jason's been referring to, 
at a couple of different 100 primes because we just wanted to compare them. And we were comparing an L-series with a non-L-series. Now, the L-series happened to be a macro, but you can run it in obviously non-macro mode. And the other one was just a standard, you know, 100mm lens, non-L-series. And the requirement for this course is that we test for video, not for stills. It's not a stills course. It's a video course, but with SLR cameras. Well, the question I had was, am I going to notice any difference between spending the money going to the L-series? Um, <clears throat> forget uh, f-stop for a second. Just am I going to notice any difference in spending the money on the, on the lens? And my theory going in was that what I'd mainly notice is build quality on the, you know, the actual housing. Mm. And this may be relevant on putting a focus ring on it and, um, and using that. But yeah. that was kind of it. What I didn't expect is that the actual 100 mils are not matching. The 100 mils, the they're not out field by... field of view. Yeah, the field of view. It's not out by a million miles, but on the same camera, on the same tripod, we're literally not moving the camera back at all because, of course, in the 100 mils, you're not mounting off the lenses, you're mounting off the camera backs. Yeah. You swap one lens for another, and it's a slightly different field of view. Much, I guess I'm so used to cinema lenses and, and PLs and stuff. You would never get that, right? Like 100 yeah. mils, 100 mils, 100 mil. Yeah. Um, which drove home to me this whole idea that what Canon does, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simultaneously compliment them and bash them at the same time. What Canon does is produce incredibly good results for the individual camera in the isolation of the environment that it's working in. What it doesn't do is produce repeatable results across multiple cameras in multiple different setups with theoretically the same uh, configs yeah so a good example of this and most people that are aware of this is back focus you don't tend to discuss back focus on a um on an slr and the reason you don't discuss back focus is it works out what's sharp and bugger it if it's sharp it's sharp and there you go Mm. um on a pl mount lens you might zoom all the way in check your focus zoom all the way back out if it the back focus is out of whack it's now soft and you complain bitterly and you start doing wedging and or adjusting PL mounts yeah. or whatever. And or if you haven't taken your focus marks, you're on a 60-foot high camera crane and you can't quite pick sharps and the focus puller's doing it totally off uh, tape measure um, and, and the tape measures don't add up with uh, the rushes. Absolutely. And you this know, just yeah, isn't how the SLR works. The SLR, as far as I'm concerned now, has gone a long way away from matching the hand meter and the hand-held tape measure. So it says... I'm going to call that... It's a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, when the whale is rushing to the planet. Um, What's that thing over there? I'm going to call that um, 40 feet. Maybe I'll get a better idea of how much that is later, but for the time being, I'll just call that 40 feet and and I'll come back to it. Whereas, of course, you'd never do that, as you say, on a PL mount lens. Mm. You know, it's a measuring instrument. You measure 40 feet. It's friggin' 40 feet. Now, that's all well and good. You might say, well, who cares? Um, If it's sharp, it's sharp. Well, I think the breathing is a problem. But the other thing that's interesting is when you try and matching. Now, actually, I give you full credit for this because you flagged this to me. You were trying to match a 7D to a 5D, and you started saying, uh, these don't seem to match. And I was like, really? I'd never thought about that. So we did a whole bunch of tests, really inspired by you, not for anything in particular, just because we were geeking out here at the tech penthouse. And we got a 7D, a, a 5D, and a red. And we aligned them at a perfectly gray, well, it was actually white, but lit with controlled lighting at night so we had no spill coming in from outside. Mm-hmm. So we knew the colour temperature of the lights because we're in a controlled environment. We're in a controlled studio and we took light measurements of the light colour temperature from the red. Right. We then separately used a proper um, spot meter and measured off what the f-stop should have been. We picked the midpoint in the uh, lenses so we didn't go wide open or anything. I think we were at either, I think we ended up at f11, but we were going for f8 initially. Right. So adjusting the lighting to make each camera match and then measuring the light 
to see what the actual difference is. Yeah, so we is. measured the light because we thought, well, here's the thing. Um, if we get a really controlled environment on grey, then theoretically if we lit the white card so that it was reading a mid-correct exposure, it should expose it as if it was mid-level grey, 18% grey. Yep. Um, and we did that at the mid-range of the lenses, so we didn't have any weird things about, you know, weird artefacts at the wrong end of the lens. And we did it on a slightly textured white card so it wasn't completely flat um and we color temperature checked because obviously you can't read sample as it were the color temperature off the cannons like you can off the red yeah and not having any kind of automatic colorometer what do you call it color colorimetry but hey the red is a good a good guide for that um so we knew what the temperature was because we had controlled kina flows we had no spill light it was that completely controlled environment at night, so there was no leak. Mm. And we measured it. And so the first thing we did is we punched all that into the cameras. We said, all right, well, you are um, on this lens at that exposure, and you're on this lens at that exposure, and you're on this lens at that exposure. And then um, we had a look at the results, and they frigging didn't match. <laughs> yeah. And so then we went and went, all right, well... I mean, if you want to match, get two of the same thing. <laughs> But it's interesting, nonetheless, to see the differences. Well, they didn't match, surprisingly didn't match, actually. Mm. And so then the color temperature was like way out. So then we did a whole bunch of interesting things. We uh, then actually got the cameras to white balance themselves. So they each white balance. Now, this gets back to my theory about Canon is good at getting itself to itself, but not to anything else. Right, yeah. So when they were white balanced to exactly the same frame, this is simultaneously shooting, um, they all white balanced to a different color temperature. And yet, in terms of tint they were all back to the correct position. So, so you mentioned that. You've got the cameras, and you say, can you white balance to yourself? They all pick different numbers yep. of the same thing and all manage to get themselves nicely white balanced, which means they're happy to white balance to themselves. They're just not happy to white balance to an external number or have never been calibrated to an external number. Right. Um, huh. Yeah, no. And then <laughs> it got worse. And then the exposure was still out. So we could get the color temperature right. The exposure was still out um, mm. based on the, the metering. So um, I did a bit of research on this and discovered that, in fact, it's not uncommon for nowadays, um, like an SLR like that, to be out by half a stop, which is what we were, uh, up to uh, as much as a stop out on what a light meter might say it actually is. So it will produce a good exposure. Yeah. But what it thinks it is, what the number is, is my whale heading towards the earth and the heart of gold, just going, um, I'll arbitrarily call that... Um, Oh, I don't know, F8. I mean, I'll worry about it later. Maybe maybe I'll call it F11 later. I don't care. Um, but that'll do for the time being, right. and we'll just get a good picture. Um, and so we kept on going. We thought, we're having fun now. So we're getting <laughs> I'm not boring you, am I? <laughs> so we sort of uber-geeked out um, because we'd had a really good chat with someone at um, uh, who were hoping to get on the show at uh, NAB. So uh, Sorry, it's a graph, and he'd given us some hints. So we started doing some interesting things. Now, remember on Red Center, we discussed the idea of what is the natural ISO of a... Of a sensor. Sensor. Hmm. So we thought, huh. And so he told us to do this. So you get basically a camera, you put a black cap on it, and you start taking photos at different ISOs. Now, what happens on a Canon camera is that the raw data is actually converted to a JPEG inside the container of the .CR2 file. It's actually converted to, we think, a 14-bit JPEG. So a pretty much lossless-ish JPEG. And that JPEG is the natural format upon which the raw file is stored. Now, that shouldn't shock anyone because 
The R3D is a wavelet. Can't really call it a JPEG, uh, a raw file. So let's let's give it our own prefix and call it a CR2. Yeah. It's not actually which, a raw file. We know that, right? We've yeah. always known that the, yeah, the raw file is really There's always something raw, going on. Yeah. But we considered it a raw file. Okay, so the real format of a Canon raw file is in fact based on JPEG. Mm. The real format of a R3D is a wavelet format, which, oh, by the way, is very close to uh, JPEG 2000. Okay, so what we do is we do that. And because it's converting it to a JPEG and actually not the raw, raw, raw data as it would be if it just uh, was reading off the sensor, and by the way, a red is the same, um, the file size changes. So what you do is you do it at 100, 200, 300, 400, and keep working your way up. And you look at the file sizes, and the file sizes basically were bouncing between 20.9 and 20 meg until we hit 800 ISO. After that, the file size started rising. By the time we got up to 64 uh, 100 ISO, the file size had hit 29 meg. Because so you there's can, more information in the Because black, there's no auto gain happening. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of processing, as we said in the Red Center back then in the day, yep. between the 100, 200, 400, 800, there's an auto gain that's working, which is why there's no natural ISO. But after that, it goes off the auto gain and starts flying solo. And as, as such, the CR, CR2 file containing inside it the high res. Uh, you never see it normally JPEG, mm. uh, and that skyrocketed in file size, which I thought was pretty interesting. That's a fair, fair amount. It is. Nine megabytes. So then we got to thinking a bit more about this. Now, I should point out there is also normally, in addition to the 14-bit JPEG, which is stored in the uh, – there is actually a quarter-res JPEG. That's not what I'm referring to. The quarter-res JPEG is the thing that you would see on your Mac if you did a preview of the file. You know, if you preview a, a .CR2 yep. file, you but actually you see an image. See, yeah. That is the auto-saved-with-it uh, quarter-res JPEG. It's also the thing that the back of the sensor shows you when you've taken a picture. Okay, so we right. go... Yeah, exactly. Your preview is never really the raw. Yeah, so why someone would ever thing. photograph raw and JPEG is beyond me as an option. There's always a JPEG the there embedded exactly. in, in the Well, contents, two, actually. The quarter-res one for the preview, right. and then the secret one inside the .CR2 file, which Canon never publishes. And I should just point out at this point that we actually approached Canon to interview them about this, and they agreed to the interview and then stood us up. So <laughs> I'm telling you what we've learned, having tried to do the right thing and speak to Canon and them being uncooperative in this one area, um, which may just be the one guy in the States who decided to be flaky, but here you go. Okay, so then we thought, all right, let's go a bit further. <laughs> you still with me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, I'm just sorry, worried that I'm... <laughs> no, no, well, I'm just having fun. So then we thought uh, about the temperature problems. Oh, the other thing I thought about was, you know how we joked about how um, the European import duties on cameras classified as a video camera if it goes to 30 minutes? Because of recording times? Yeah. Is that crap? Well, I thought so. I thought so, because I thought, like you, I've never got even close to 29 minutes on a video record file, because what happens is the... um, Fat32 kicks in with 2 gig much earlier. 4 gig? Uh, yeah. Whatever it is. Whatever. No, yeah, you're right. Whatever. So, but then we thought, well, if we're shooting black and we keep on a low ISO, isn't it going to compress really well? Which, of course, it would because it's not, um, mm. not video. It's, you know, a compressed uh, picture. So we ran it with black on the thing. And sure enough, because we kept it with black, hence the interframe compression and uh, both the, the um, you know, both types of compression basically were running sweet yep. it ran up to 29 minutes 59 seconds and stopped so that's true okay 
Of course, it only works on black, yeah. <laughs> which is not very relevant. So, you know, how long will it record video for is what am I shooting? If I'm shooting high-frequency stuff changing, yeah, it's going to be it's like drop even less than 10 minutes. And mm. if it's shooting completely black with the lid on, not very useful, it will, in fact, shoot at uh, 29 minutes and 59 seconds thanks to the um, European uh, Union. Okay. So then we thought, after that test, I started thinking about this, and I thought, well, the thing that, that's bugging us about the Epic, we think, again, pure rumour, is that they had a heat problem. Yeah. Now, yep. the reason that that rumour was... was... Well, we, yes, it is. Yes. We're still guessing. Well, we're guessing, we but, so. but let's face it... they've now then added, like, another 5 mil, or they've extended the body shape to... Uh, yes, plus anyone that was really observant would notice that at NAB, yep. they had lots of red epics running, none actually recording, mm. just playing live. So the cameras yes. in the jail room were playing live to monitors, but in yeah. the main presentation room where they showed us the one clip of the person sitting at the card table, mm. uh, that was actually it. actually rolling. And it's like, well, hang on a second. If you've got a camera in next door with the chick in the jail room, why don't why you just record her and stick footage. it in and play it at 4K? And the only answer I could come up with was that they're having a problem with the recording, not mm. the sensor running. Mm. Anyway, so this all this heat thing has been bouncing around in my head, and I thought, well, hang on, what's the deal on the Canon? So I thought about it, and there's no cooling in the Canon. And it wasn't yeah. designed for this. Yeah, there's no. Um, yeah, they're not designed to get normally quite warm. I mean, a, a CF card will get a bit toasty-ish if you're doing a lot of stills. Mm. But so I did a bit of research and discovered that it's actually designed to run at 50 degrees C. At least I think that's what it is because Canon won't um, take right. my calls. And um, actually, parts of Canon are very, very kind to me, but parts of Canon, like the US guy, just ignore me. So I thought, all right, well, let's see what's going on with this. So we started looking at what happened to the file over the duration of the record period. With, with the heat as it builds up, as with it the heat. records. And sure enough, the file size of the frames and the noise level of the frames and the actual colour the actual picture is changing over of time. The black. As it heats up. Yeah. So the Oh no, the, on the white. Col- we did it on white. Oh okay. Right. Now it doesn't heat up on black, and this is a really interesting point for you geeking out people. That's what we thought. We'd thought it's going to show up on black first, and it doesn't. Right. Now I know some guys that used to work at Canon Research in Australia, and I know in many parts of Canon's technology field, including printers and scanners, there's a um, from the print world, there's this idea that when you get close to black, it basically uh, switches over to being black. In other words, there's circuitry like on a printer. Right. That if you're trying to print like a text on a piece of white paper, if it thinks it's black and white, it switches it to being black and white and doesn't try and print you 99% black with using all four colours. Right. So we think it's doing a similar thing with a video. When it sees black, it goes, oh, okay, that's black. We'll call that black. We actually make it black, which means you don't see a noise floor raising up when shooting black. But we weren't shooting black. We were shooting 18% grey. And so the 18% grey drifted during the record cycle. So between starting the camera up cold, and I say cold, I mean, you know, yeah, room temperature, from, yeah. and running it for even 10 minutes, you'll notice a slight drift. To what? To Get, the start of the same clip. But getting warmer, getting Yeah, noisier, because getting... the, well, noisier, um, the noise floor, and, uh, and actually the yeah, shift in colour. Mm-hmm. So it's not a huge shift, um, but it's... These things that led me to the assertion on this show that I like the Canon camera a lot. It's just not a mega professional piece of kit. Yeah. Because really, Canon wins many of these arguments by simply not engaging in the fight. I mean, no, yeah. not talking oh, to well, me. You know, if it's not a stills camera. Yeah, then you go to NAB and you see just, you know, like 
major you know presenters going banging on about you know what what fantastic footage they've shot and uh, dozens and dozens of cameras all rigged up as shooting cinema cameras on the canon stand it's not this is not the company this is not some third party company grabbing a company a camera and making it do something that it shouldn't this is canon getting their camera and making it do something that it shouldn't and then you know, so they can't really and then and then they can't really then hang on to the oh well you know it's still a camera what, what can you expect well, the point is, I mean, if you were to level those criticisms at any other camera company, I mean, let's pick Ari now, don't even pick on Red. If the, if the Alexa drifted during a 10-minute take, if the heat caused it to have slightly different characteristics, if the Well, we sensor have a long take on an Alexa you can look at. You actually have an Alexa file. Well, now, now interestingly, Which is very interestingly to people Mr. who have Wingrove, actually bought Alexas who actually don't have any files. Yes. Um, Humble Pie, take two. Yes, Jason is now referring to the fact that he said that Alexa had been released without a beta program. Though it oh, is in I've, fact I've injured. joked that Ari had, you know, uh, Red had brought out a color chart and Canon had brought out a whole ca- uh, Ari had brought out a whole camera. Yes, okay. Well, well, you're funnier than I am, and I'll give you that. But I'm like geekier, so I'm going to keep going because I've got one more point I want to make, which is that not only did we discover this, um, that there's obviously a black balance subtraction of the frame that causes black to remain black and that isn't happening in the midtones, which of course is changing the the um, histogram mm-hmm. there's two other things you can note if you were to do this test that i'm just describing and you overexpose your footage uh now the way to do this by the way is not in like aperture or something it's actually to take it in with bridge into photoshop and then whack up the settings during the bridge import you can actually see the sensor profile of the sensor you're working on and so in the case of the 5d you get exactly what you'd expect in my camera i get a much lower noise floor in the green channel than i do in the red and the blue because right. clearly there's twice as many green as there are red and blue points right what i wasn't quite interested to to know is that in doing this research um i I struck upon somebody who had a theory about why the nikon is getting better iso than the canon and apparently what's happening is that uh, nikon is overexposing the blue channel because the thing that defines the iso that you can go with hence the radically high isos is really the noise floor right you know that from red because when we looked at the mx filter they said, oh, actually, the MX chip, sorry, isn't actually more sensitive than the M. It just has a better noise floor, so you can run it at 800. Well, we think what they're doing is they're actually overexposing the blue channel and then trying to compensate inside the Nikon, which means you tend to get much better ISO, but that's why people complain that the skin colors in a Nikon yeah, aren't quite as nice quite as, right. as mm. the Canon because mm. they're basically cheating up the blue exposure and then trying to compensate back for it in a 3D matrix. So, you know, I respect Canon for not doing that, though, people i think would love the iso of the nikon and then hope they could grade it out later anyway um yeah i'm sure nikon i mean i guess nikon know this they know that they've screwed up kind of with their video modes and theoretically the next ones will change and they'll change their codecs and maybe maybe they'll get it with their chips i don't know i mean every camera is comes you know different chip from different for different bodies sometimes you know sony might make a chip for 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 one camera and for for well, one funny Nikon you should and say someone that. else now might maybe make someone it. can confirm this but in the, in the process of doing this we were found out that you can get your 5D from one of two factories the original japanese factory and an entire second factory they built you heard this? I believe so. I think about a year ago they built an entire other factory to uh, may not be necessary just to do 5Ds, but also to, but to do um, chip manufacturing. And this is this is literally like last year. This is the first factory Canon mm-hmm. has built, their first new factory in like 26 years. So 26 years of Canon and all the evolution 
and this is their their first literally new big build of real estate in in a, a quarter of a century, uh, and it's to do you know chips for 5D, I believe. Because you know one of the things we know when you're buying a Honda is you prefer to buy well, for example, I. You know, if you buy a hybrid like I have, Mm. it's nice to buy the hybrid because you know it's built in the Japanese factory, not in the Brazilian factory, or not to have a slur at any Brazilians, but... Yeah, there's plenty of stuff. Yeah, I believe that there's um, two different kinds of 5D. Didn't I say that? BMW is the same thing, right? Like, there's a... Yeah, that's right. So anyway, which factory? Yeah, the the X5 will come from America and the X3 will come from friggin'... South Africa or whatever. Now, there's one more test I wanted to do, which I obviously haven't done because I haven't got my doubler. Had I mentioned that some bastard stole it? Yeah. Anyway, um, which is that we think there could be a color bias shift uh, over the zoom, over the over the um, the length of the zoom. So what we need to do is set up some tests. Um, but anyway, uh, right. Well, okay. well so anyway, there's lots you, of glass you, moving around. So I, my wife actually asked me to pass along to you. Could you ask Jason to be really careful with, careful with the casual comments he makes along the lines of, "Hey, Mike." I was wondering about X because it causes me to stay back late at night playing around with okay. sensors until midnight okay. just so that I can waste your time you're on Red blaming your, your home life on, on my inquisitive, I'm, I'm just, inquisitive I'm just, nature. Well, your inquisitive nature causes me to, to geek out at Excellent. length. Okay. Anyway, so I ran um, – yeah, so we've been running a lot of those tests. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I hope you enjoyed that, uh, that walk down tech lane. <laughs> Stumble down technique. But we actually should have. We go, should we go to our interview? I was going to say yes. We have a very a non-technical, very practical, very nice. Um, it can get a bit technical. It depends on uh, um, you know. That there's a lot to it. There's a lot to this spot, which is really interesting. Um, now, obviously, Mike, you've done the interview, so you know a little bit more about it. But what uh, was very cool um, is the very, very for a really high tech, gorgeous. Uh, result for a spec for a spec commercial. Um, there's some pretty low tech going on to create it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing we should point out about this is that normally we say with the this is in the show notes. Well, this will probably no doubt be in the show notes, but also we'll probably put a link on the main page of FX Guide because in the show notes we can't actually show you the video clip, whereas we can actually put a link to the clip. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's cross to Doug now. Now I recorded this actually when I was exhausted at about five o'clock in the morning um, uh, when I was in LA. Doug, thanks so much for joining us on the line, and congratulations on the spot. I, I love this spot; it's great. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it was really fun to uh, put together. So it, it incorporates a lot of things that I like. <laughs> Let's start with the photography, which was done uh, on an SLR. Yeah, it was uh, the Canon 5D Mark II. Um, just used a 17 to 40 millimeter lens, the L series, and uh, basically, kind of, obviously, it's uh, it's a time lapse type of shot, um, which I was able to create using this rig that I kind of built for the SLR. It's well, um, kind of a poor man's motion control. On that uh, 17 to 40, was it sort of wide at 17? or? Yeah, it was pretty much fully open. <clears throat> and so, of course, the great thing about that is when you're shooting time-lapse, you're not getting like the 1920x1080 output that you would obviously get from running a 5D Mark II in video mode. You're actually getting the really high-resolution files that come from the still photography, obviously, now combined together. So what resolution did you get out um, and pass on to post? Um, I shot at the, the lowest RAW setting so that I was able to uh, not fill up the card and have to change cards mid-shot. So it was... Uh, I think it was 2,500, some, some, one of those numbers around there. Um, Which is good because it gives you a bit of room to move in post. Did you have exactly. to s- 
exactly. Did you stabilize or, or do anything to that shot to process it? No, we didn't stabilize it. We just um, we just had to track it. We kind of picked a little bit of a crop that was uh, not not even that much pushed in from from the full the full frame image, um, but just obviously crop for for HD. Um, but it gave us that latitude vertically to kind of figure out exactly where we wanted the action to happen on the ground in front of us. And apart from anything else, these were cars that were just naturally driving by. These weren't your, I assume they weren't your um, sort of production cars driving through a shot. Exactly. Yeah, no, they were just uh, natural natural street traffic on the <laughs> so, corner. So you'd, it's good to have a bit of extra room to move because you really didn't know where they were going to go or what they were going to do. Yeah, exactly. So now you've got that, that plate element, and I imagine that a really key part of that is actually getting a 3D track from that because apart from anything else, it's a, you know, you've done it on a, a 17, but it's, you know, it's stop-frame animation, and you do need a traditional camera track to be able to do the, uh, the effects properly. Exactly. Yeah, actually, it, it turned out to be a lot trickier than we thought. We kind of, we, we watched the plate back and, and it was like really buttery smooth and we were just really psyched with it. And we were, you know, thinking, oh, this will track super easy. No, no big deal. But it turned out to be really difficult. Um, not completely sure why. I think part of it had to do with the lens distortion and also the the lights going through frame created a lot of like uh interference with the track so a lot of it had to be done manually um frame by frame but uh so many of those tracking track for it yeah pf tracks good but so many of those lighting algorithms um assume a near constant uh luminance level and so you you're right when those lights go through they can really throw out the um the pattern matching on the uh, pf track trackers yeah so let's go back to your homemade motion control rig. Tell us what that was, because I, I want to make one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, I had been developing it uh, with a friend of mine for the past couple of years. We, uh, uh, he was really interested in time-lapse photography, and we started talking about how to, how to make a camera move for, for time-lapse, because we've seen a lot of uh, basic pans uh, using uh, some different uh, motor heads and Although that was really cool, like you don't, you know, it's a nodal pan, so you don't get any depth movement at all. So we were trying to figure out how to create like any any kind of depth movement on a track. So we started playing around, and uh, we came up with we might as well just build it ourselves. And there's this company, 8020, who kind of provides uh, cut-to-length aluminum extruded aluminum parts that you can essentially design design what you want, and then give them the parts order and they'll send you all the parts and then you just kind of put it together yourself. So uh, I got like a six foot length of track built. So it's all like, uh, there's these, I don't even know how to describe it, but they're like grooves within the extruded aluminum, which then linear bearings kind of fit into and the dolly sits on these linear bearings. So it slides along the six foot track very smoothly. Um, And then there's a piece of gear rack that was, bolted down through the middle of the track between the two the two arms um and then the dolly has a bunch of gears on it that is actually driven by lego mindstorms i don't know if you're familiar with uh it's a it's the robotics kit that lego um puts out it's essentially a toy but it's very powerful because you can program these servos to move at certain times or certain intervals at a certain power um, so you basically can program a move along this dolly. 
so it's geared down so it'll move very very slowly over a long period of time and I basically had set it up for this specific shoot so that it would um, move very incrementally pause for seven minutes while the shutter would expose for three seconds and then it would loop so then it would move again pause shutter would go move again pause and it would go like that all the way down the track for two and a half hours I think it was so can I just clarify that? Because did you say Lego Mindstorms? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. That That is literally like a, a thing put out by the real Lego company, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> because the and biggest problem with, with software animation is getting really good uh, slow speed stepper motors that are accurate and that, you know, do what you want. Um, exactly. And these worked, obviously. Yeah, they worked really well. Um, unfortunately, like the power output is, is very low, so... For this model of the of the rig that uh, I was using, uh, I could only use the Legos for one range of motion. I'm still developing a, a process to have it uh, be able to pan and tilt at the, all from the same brain, as they call it. Um, but the power output is is kind of weak, so I don't know if it's going to be possible with that setup. But um, for what it is, it's it's really amazing because it's a graphical user, user interface that you can kind of pull these tiles that have little nodes that, that have the move that you want and you can just pipe them all together with, with time and, and power and it's just very, very user-friendly. Yeah, that's extraordinary. I mean, I've done motion control stuff with um, sliders from like Kessler and they're, you know, the, I mean, it's a big rig and the stepper motors are like really pretty hefty uh, beasts. So I'm incredibly yeah. impressed that you managed to put this together with Lego. Um, yeah. <laughs> albeit the, you know, Lego stuff and I know that there's a whole subculture around the Mindstorm stuff, and right. and, and uh, the you know a whole user group of people that are taking it to advanced levels. Nevertheless, um, it's impressive. So okay, so now we've got a, a really good base shot, and I think you just said it was like what three second exposure, seven second move. Um, yeah, you, you have to have two really believable things for this spot to to be as enchanting and, and as appealing as it is. One is a really realistic shoe, and secondly is the plants. Did you do? Um, HDRs or anything? I mean, how do you go about doing the lighting to make those two things work? Yeah, definitely. Um, while I was there, right after the two and a half hours of the, the rig finished up, I set up my tripod and shot a full panoramic um, shooting, I think in total, uh, I think it was five exposures, two under, two over, and then obviously one in the middle um, of each position all the way around to create a full panoramic HDR. Now, that's, that works really well in any one particular spot. Obviously, it's industry standard, but um, you have to sell these items going into the shot when there's a streaking car going by, and there's no way you can do an HDR of a streaking car going by. So exactly. it, would, it would be a, a misnomer to pretend that once you got an HDR of the scene, that had solved the lighting, because you must have had to hand-tweak it for, for various frames when you had these um, cool light streaks going through. Yeah, we actually came up with a, an idea to solve that issue. Instead of sitting there and animating lights, which would have been um, almost as tedious as, as what we ended up doing, I think what we ended up doing is taking the, the original plate that we shot and rotoed out the light streaks pretty roughly, you know, soft garbage mats around the light streaks, and then put that over black and then mapped that onto like a secondary HDR sphere in the, in the 3D scene. So anytime the light would, would uh, streak. It, would, it was playing down in that sphere within the 3D scene, and that would add that additional light to our CG elements in the scene. 
I mean, there's a shot, just if people uh, have only seen it briefly, like um, as a frame, I guess, about halfway through, there's a light streak that almost goes the entire length of the shot. Um, yeah. It's white, it's yellow, and it's right where the the um, the shoe is, like one shoe is on the ground below it and another one's above it. It's, um, it's not inconsequential to solve that kind of stuff because it's that contact lighting, I think, that really helps sell it. And, and speaking of which, there's um, a, an eerie kind of cool uh, particle system happening in the shoes as well. I presume yes. that was just uh, – how was that done? Uh, it's actually a mixture of things. It's, um, it's uh, a lot of particular and um, a lot of, like, old footage of uh, kind of photosonic water bursts that I've just had in my library over the years of stuff. Um, so it's a, it's a combination of a lot of different elements that are kind of put together and tracked into the shoe. Okay, so if we've got lighting kind of looking vaguely under control, I was really impressed with the dynamics of the actual shoe itself, like the compression of the heel, especially the compression around the forward part where the toes are on the yeah. bit where the weight transfers from the rear to the front. So I assumed yeah. you'd just shot those. Uh, well, of course, when I first was shot the shot before we spoke, I assumed it was all shot um, two passes, motion control with someone in a Lycra suit running the shoes and one on the, obviously on the street. But yeah. that's not the case, is it? No, no, no. It's a it's a full CG shoe. Um, basically, we uh, we just went out and bought the shoe and uh, brought it back to the office and um, just photographed it from every angle to get you know all of our reference done. But they didn't and, give you um, a shoe. No, no. This is uh, this is <laughs> this is actually a spec spot, Mike. I don't no, know. No, I, I realize that. I was just joking. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, the, the, yeah, the least they kinda... could have done, I thought, figure is uh, say, "Here's some shoes." Yeah, um, I know. I wish, but. <laughs> Uh, not not today, not this time. Um, so so yeah. sorry, I cut you off. So um, yeah, so oh, you've got okay. the shoes and so for rigging, um, once we had it modeled, um, we kind of did a lot of of research on how these shoes move. And uh, I don't know if you're aware on on YouTube has like tons of these like uh, scientific like old black and white they look like they're old but i'm sure it's just the, the the camera that they're using of like these shoes just kind of rolling through frame at very very slow speed photosonics and stuff and so we we just gathered a ton of those and just watching them over and over while seeing how the the foot works within the shoe and you know we had to do this because we we realized you know like this the shoe is the hero here and we need to we need to rig it and make the detail such that it's like a full character, like this is the character. So we need to build a rig that's just as detailed as, as any other, like maybe full CG character might be. So we had, you know, a lot of a lot of work done on like how to separate the sole from the mesh of the shoe, and like how does each how does each material of this shoe react as it kind of squishes through. And so there just, there just ended up being a lot of different controllers on the on the sole of the shoe that were able to. To, uh, to control the, the squash and the stretch. And then, like, overall, there was, like, a, a bigger kind of lattice work that kind of simulated the shoe, the, the foot within the shoe kind of pulling pulling that shoe forward. Like, as soon as, as, soon as the weight transfers from the heel to the toe, you see a, you see a huge shift kind of yeah, really bulging through the front of the shoe. Yeah. yeah, so it's just kind of, you know, getting all those controllers in there and making sure they work was definitely... It was definitely a challenge. I guess at this point we should reveal uh, that you actually have an incredibly strong post background. In fact, uh, you worked at uh, Psychops, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I've been compositing uh, for quite a while. I was 
visual effects supervisor in various places and lead compositor for for a long many years. Um, yeah, I've been able to work with some of the some of the best studios here in New York. It's been it's been really great. So obviously, approaching a job like this um, and producing such interesting new director cut stuff, it's it's really interesting to have such an incredibly strong technical background yourself because it does facilitate you knowing exactly what you're doing. Because I imagine that um, that there was uh, a fairly healthy sort of respect to how hard this was going to be when you started. Yeah, everybody, we all kind of realized that this was going to be a tough one to pull off. Um, it's, it was combining techniques that we, we haven't done before and a lot of techniques that we may have done but not to this level. So it was, it was definitely a lot of planning up front and conversations of whether or not we can pull it off. But, I mean, I was pretty confident with everyone involved that they were everyone was going to be able to, to show up for this. And, I mean, it, obviously it shows through that everybody that, that touched it, you know, is extremely talented and, you know, everybody just did a great job. Um, so now if you'd stopped there, we'd have had a really nice spot of the shoes running uh, along a vacant street with a cool kind of look. But but the spot's sort of message, which I think is hysterically um, on on target is this idea of reducing your carbon footprint one step at a time and so tell us how that was actualized in terms of the visuals because it if you'd stopped there i'd have been happy but you went even one step further than what we've described um yeah actually basically i I, new balance is is a forward-thinking company as far as environmental awareness and all that stuff so they were they were kind of a perfect brand to pick for this this idea this concept um so basically, we just, we, I was thinking, well, we, what if these, you know, I mean, we've all kind of seen it before where the footsteps or something kind of creates, you know, this, this plant life kind of situation. Um, so I wanted to kind of take that idea to a different level and just think about, like, what's, what's a more interesting way of seeing this or what's, what's a different way of seeing this more beautiful? And that's where the, the kind of the slow motion kind of thing came about mixed with the time lapse. You're combining these different time spaces and creating this very surreal moment in, in, in your visual experience. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of started picking plants that we thought would be really beautiful and, and work well with one another. Uh, we headed over to the nursery and picked up a bunch and picked them apart, dissected them, <laughs> figured out how they work and how they look and all that. So, again, somebody may have thought that, you know, you just had a time lapse of plants growing or something, but these are all CG as well. Exactly. Yeah, which is really nice because I say that time thing works really well. You know, the the real time of the running, the the obviously sort of stop motiony look of the New York streets, and then what seems to be just you know like rapid acceleration of time on on the plant life, and also just like the way they kind of when they come up, they kind of bounce around as if the uh, they're interacting with the shoe, even though as I say, the time zones are kind of way out of whack. Yeah, um, and well, also, I didn't want to have the uh, the plants like I wanted the the time lapse like time for the plants with this you know like you said accelerated growth but you know when you watch actual time lapse of plants everything's very jittery and and you know staccato um we wanted something that would be smoother and more beautiful so that's i guess that's probably why the one of the reasons why we did them in cg so that we could kind of control that and like keep them beautiful in this world keep everything smooth and 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 flowing yeah, and even the the run cycle itself is like a slow motion run cycle, which is nice. Um, yeah, which gives it kind of a, a majestic kind of elegance. So you must be really pleased with the spot. I mean, uh, I, I think the grade on it's quite nice. The contrasting um, color palettes 
there's you know warmth picked up from the back of the um, the stop frame stuff, but the stop frame stuff obviously has more of a, a bluey tinge to it, and there's uh, as yeah. does the vapors in the in the shoe. But then you've got yeah. these lovely, nice, warm tones um, coming down on the ground. Um, yeah. Did you spend much time grading it? Uh, yeah, we spent uh, we spent a little bit of time. Um, right off the chip, it was all pretty warm in general. It was uh, uh, just kind of flat almost. Uh, the lighting was beautiful in the scene. Like the the street was amazingly beautiful that night. I just put put a bunch of water on the ground to get those nice reflections in the beginning, but. Um, Overall, like it just didn't have the depth that I really wanted within the within the the photograph. So yeah, I, I was playing around with a bunch of different looks for a while, and and this one kind of really seemed to to nail the the feel with the contrast and the the complementary colors between the CG and the background. It all just kind of seemed to gel really nicely. Right. Yeah. Look, I think I think it is great. It's um it's it's a, a lovely spot. Now, have you had any much feedback on it since it's been done? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it actually got released, I guess, a week and a half ago, um, and uh, yeah, everybody that's been seeing it has been loving it. So it's been it's been great to to hear people being like, "Oh, I saw that New Balance thing. It looks great. Thanks, thanks." You know, it's been really cool. Oh, excellent. Well, look, um, thanks for agreeing to talk to us. We really do appreciate it, and congratulations on the spot. And I'm I'm I need you to send me a photo, or I mean, you must have taken one of the. Um, of the Lego rig on the motion control, because I think that's just uh, insane. Yeah, sure, definitely. I'll uh, get that off to you right away. Okay, thanks so much, man. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks a lot. Uh, awesome interview. Thank you, and thanks to uh, Doug for taking the time. That was awesome. Uh, what looks like, I have to dig a little bit deeper from Doug, but that looks like he's using the pictures on the blog. Uh, looks like he's using a rather than whatever you got your um hdr remote head the um giga pan mm-hmm. it looks like he's actually rather than even using something like that it's gone even even more low tech and using one of those uh Lego. no but a mead telescope like the telescope head right like you might put it on telescope and put it you know follow this constellation mode so it's a very simple almost a couple of hundred bucks uh, remote head uh yeah and then lego lego mindstorms to power the dolly Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Good now, fun. D- and the f- results are way beyond the tech that's involved. Oh, that's so right. good, yeah. So, um, to finish up, uh, let's do some gear. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some gear. This is awesome. Because um, I've been doing the doco and wanting to record a bit of sound. Mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, I guess I should just follow the pack and get the... Um, the Zoom? The Zoom H4n. That's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. And uh, I was playing at NAB, playing with John Montgomery's got mm-hmm. an H4N and he sort of warned me beforehand and said Incomprehensible the menus. menu is not that great I said come on hand it over let me have a look yeah he's right that thing is like an absolute do your freaking scone in that that, that that thing is like mind numbing um, now for those of you listening at home Jason Wingrove I'm just pulling out a piece of equipment that you can't see looks very um, sexy but the, and the H4N is really nice but you know it's pretty plasticky I mean it, it'll do four it'll do four channels it is like the um you know, it's like the real workhorse of, of, for recording single double system sound for recording separate audio on SLRs. Now, uh, I got what I've got here is a Tascam DR100, but mainly because now they've actually come down in price. They're now the same price as an H4n, and I, well, I needed a little separate audio recorder to record interviews for the uh, thing. Immediately, 
the menu is like, let me just turn it on for you, Mike. Hang on. I, I am already in love. The menu is just really simple. How much money are we talking about? Uh, two ninety nine. <gasps> so the what, locally or is that two ninety nine? That's dollars. a B and H price. The main things that I wanted to get was hands on, like right there is a knob. Is for a levels. knob audio levels separate audio levels for 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 uh, XLRs in as you can feel metal this thing's built out of metal really nice now, backlit screen I don't know if it would help very if, very if it simple the, uh, very si- I'll put some pics in in the show notes but yeah go and look for the DR-100 at uh, B&H or wherever now let me ask you this question how do I get the file off this? Okay, it's an SD card. Right. And if you a little top flap between the two yes. microphones, you can put your thumb under there and pop the SD card out. Uh, the other thing about it, it has two methods of power supply. It has uh, a like a lithium-ion battery in the side, but also has double A's in the bottom. So if you run oh, out of one sexy. battery source, you can swap to another. The downside is it is not four-channel recording, which the H4N is. Um, but the H4N's kind of a little bit hobbled in the fact that you cannot change – somebody ping me if I'm wrong, but I think with the H4N, you cannot record – if you're putting two XLRs in, you cannot individually change the level of the recording of, of left and right channel, which I think is just like nuts. Oh, you must be able to. Nuts. I, I, I couldn't see a single way of doing it. I'm pretty sure that there's something wrong with that. Um, and that lithium battery pops out for recharging externally, right? Yeah, yeah you can pop, or you can charge it from USB – um, from you charge it up via USB within it, ladies and gentlemen. This is truly a sexy thing. It's that very I'm simple. My hand. It's a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger than the oh, H4N, and yeah. And then you've got um, double A's in the bottom. Uh, but what it, well, the other thing I like is that rather than digging through menus, there is like as you can see, there's like a ton of switches all around this thing. There's a switch to go to what XLR or what input mode. There's a switch to go switch phantom power on. There's just like a ton of physical switches on this thing that uh, I thought, well, this is just that little bit more pro, and now the price has come down. The other only minus is that with the uh, H4, the Zoom, it has those kind of hybrid sockets where you can put in XLR or a 6.5 jack. Uh, these are literally just XLR only, so that's the other downside, but hey, go XLR all the way. So, yeah, I thought that was definitely worth a mention. Got time for this other one, which you've had a play with, which I haven't. Well, I actually took to America. Um, but which we're on, while we're on the subject of sound... Um, I'll pit, pull out another piece of equipment that you cannot see. The cutest little shotgun mic in history. Scarily gorgeous kind of hang on, I can't even find it in the box. I think it's somewhere in here. Oh, there it is. It's cute. Now, this is a uh, designed specifically for DSLR sh- audio shooting for doing single system or double system. So actually, there's cables in the kit to put uh, this straight into your camera or an XLR cable to go to a recorder like the Tascam. So well, this is a basic little tiny baby... Um, shotgun. shotgun mic for the top of your camera. Um, it's just like going with the um, uh, the Rode stereo mic. This thing is, to give it's you an like, idea, it's, it's a little like, bit bigger than an, an old-fashioned cigarette. It's like a pen. It's the size yeah. of a biro, right? But this I will is, say this. As cute as it is, the only problem I had with it is that it's so lightweight that the little ball mount on the top of your um, yes. hot shoe tends to not tighten to a level right. of aggressive this sort of this this ball mount here yeah. which you could then just just dump anyway and there's nothing stopping you just putting that whole little shock you've got mount. to stop speaking in terms of that and this that and this you can get rid of the little ball mount, mount if you want and just put the microphone st- yeah it's exactly this is just like this is just like uh, <clears> listening <throat> to listening to twip or any uh, this week in tech where they just crap on endlessly about stuff you can't see 
Anyway, let me just finish what I was saying. So that it's it's lightweight, which is great, it's, but because everything's lightweight and so small, mm. it's not really, really solid it's, rock and roll yeah, lock. Yeah, you do lose that. And so um, I found occasionally when I wasn't looking, I'd have bumped it yeah. in between takes and it would no longer be pointing straight ahead. And right. I had to keep a, a mental checklist when I was going to do a shot, make sure that the shotgun is aimed where I wanted it to be. Yeah. <clears throat> but look, honestly, um, after uh, Tyler went in the river, oh, did I mention that? Um, and he lost his... Let's mention it again anyway. Mm, I have video of Tyler going in the river. Um, and he lost his uh, his Zoom. Then uh, I was recording audio off this shotgun. And I really like it. It's got its own little super cute um, windsock, which is just hysterical. Uh, com. Now, this is going to put uh, you back... This is actually a Australian company. This is put you back a little bit of money. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what the prices are going to be internationally, but here it's like about 400 or so dollars. It uh, is actually really good audio quality, surprisingly good audio quality. F- for its size. And as I say, it comes with uh, some really nice cabling options uh, and like a little dead cat. But don't be uh, surprised if your kids nick it and think it's a toy. <laughs> It is a bit sort of Barbie's Barbie's uh, little shotgun mic, but it's it's really gorgeous. Have you seen there is actually a Barbie cam? Have you? Don't start me on the Barbie cam. Okay. Did you see my Barbie cam handheld rig? Are we going to do a stereo Barbie rig? Want to do a, a bit of B on B action? I was thinking it would be for a joke. Go and buy one off eBay, and uh, yeah, but it's a very short-lived joke, just like the uh, Canon coffee mugs. Um, I thought they were real. The, the co- Canon coffee mugs are looking awesome now. There's new versions I've seen. They look really good. They now have a nice <coughs> lens hood instead of a cap. Gorgeous. Um, look, as we've um, been talking, so, uh, yep. as we've been talking, apparently uh, Red has enabled the HDR mode on the Epics, though we've not seen any images from it. So hopefully we'll see that next week. As you know, it's something close to my heart. Um, we need to go, Jace, because I desperately, absolutely have to get gear packed up for a shoot tomorrow. Yep, absolutely. You go do that. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to give us... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Twitter shout-out to Digital FX and uh, Baton Rouge, who are red, uh, hardcore, cool guys um, who we love. And it's actually worth following them because they tend to be wide into stuff. So if you want to... Anything pops up in the red community, they'll tend to flag it, and they don't published stupid stuff so. so that's digital f letter f letter x correct okay awesome terrific um and um i'm going to say uh, follow glenn ryan who's an australian uh he is uh his twitter is polvo volvo i've no idea why i must ask him next time i see him p-o-l-v-o oh no sorry it's polvo polvo uh i've still have no idea why uh but yeah he's a, a shooter and dslr guy and uh yeah worth a worth a follow as well um again guys any feedback something we got wrong something we got right let us know um especially got some insight into the sensors because um as i say we've been trying to validate this but we gave up and and so we're working out the best we can from the information that's available. But if you have better information, please let us know. We, we have tried checking our facts. In fact, we did. We did a bunch of uh, checks to other... What are you laughing about? No, no just absolutely. We, I emailed we, we a bunch of people try, and said... Uh, we try. And said, this is our understanding. Have you got any different understanding? They were like, no, no, that's how we understand it as well. Yep. It's, it's hard, this stuff. You send out a ton of emails and uh, so few of them come back. So, um, yeah, we do try. <laughs> Uh, anyway, look, thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, red at fxguide.com if you've got any uh, questions or any suggestions. And you can follow Mike at uh, twitter.com slash Mike Seymour. And, and if anyone knows Tim Smith, can you please ask him to answer his emails occasionally? <laughs> Talk to you guys later. Okay, see you guys. See Bye. Thanks for listening. 
If you have any questions or comments, please email us, red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.